Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Welcome to the after party. It's time to change. You're just getting started. You can teach an old dog new ways and not just on Saturday. Hey, you guys, it's Anna David with After Party Pod. How are you? I am so wiped out, and I know that probably you could argue I shouldn't be recording an intro while I'm so wiped out, but it is because we are making After Party Chat, the accompanying website to this podcast, so kick-ass that it's taking everything and more out of me and my writers and editors. So it's all, it's all for you. I want you to know that, but it is, it is draining a girl. So that's really what's all that's going on with me. We're increasing our content by the by from five stories a day to 13 stories a day. Um, so that's kind of the situation here. I love you guys for listening. Great feedback of late. Still getting amazing emails about the Moby episode, which I know kind of rocked my world too. Uh, he he was amazing, and uh, you know you guys are amazing for listening. Uh, on to that point, I'd like to say um, keep reviewing us on the iTunes. It's such a nice thing to you know do five stars and and do all of that. It means a lot, and it, it, and it helps other people find the show. Also, subscribe if you uh, just, let's say you just download it and you don't subscribe. Subscribe. This is what helps us make those lists on iTunes and thus helps other people find us. So, business out of the way. I'm excited and proud to tell you guys about my guest today. His name is Sarge Pickman. Real name, Stephen, but... He doesn't go by that. And the reason I'm so excited to have him and introduce you guys to him is that, and we go over this in the interview you're about to hear, he was the very first person in sobriety who made me howl with laughter. And that's a big deal because I never thought I'd laugh again when I got sober. And he was a secretary in a meeting I went to, and he was loud, and he spoke rapid fire, and he killed me. And so I never forgot that. You know, I ended up, you know, hearing and seeing lots of funny people, oh, you know, over the years, but, but he was the first. And so he moved away from L.A. and I kind of lost touch. I never saw him. And then I reached out to him on Facebook because I was going to ask him to be on this very podcast. And then I saw, oh, he moved away. I didn't know that until I saw that on Facebook. And then because God works in mysterious ways, I ran into him here. He was here. We ran into each other. I think it was yesterday, the day before. And he's like, I'm leaving town. I don't know. And then my guest today canceled and we were able to get Sarge in here. 
I was able to get Sarge in here. Um, he is, as luck would have it, because he's so funny, a comedian. But he is so much more than a comedian. Sure, he's been on Craig Ferguson. Sure, he's performed all over. But his whole life is about the service. And so he actually works, works at treatment centers, uh, leading groups. It started with him going to treatment centers and killing them with humor the way he killed me. Um, and that has developed into this whole other thing. And he talks about that and kind of about everything else. He gets a lot in there because he talks faster than I do. And yeah, he's got a fascinating story. Um, adopted, uh, interracial, didn't meet his mom, met his mom over the phone, uh, lives in Vegas while he was performing in Vegas. And um, a whole long story. Learn is, is a music musical prodigy to the point that when he saw The Sound of Music at the age of five, he came home and started playing the songs on the piano by memory. Anyway, you will not be disappointed. This is Sarge Pickman. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash. Oh my God. I think my copy has like blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal. I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton. I was on the, as right. I call it, the Autobahn to nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? But you have no idea what I'm doing, which is why it's going to be fun for you. Good, because I want to discover. You have no idea. Okay. Well, tell me everything about what you're doing. You go to treatment centers. Tell- so, so you know that. Only because you told me yesterday. Okay. As a conscious next blending of the outgrowth of my own personal journey, mm-hmm. which sounds really ephemeral and pretentious. Yeah. But... You know, I got sober. The idea of being a comedian came to me during a meditation at treatment. Like three days into treatment, they said, what would you be that you've always wanted to be, that you never thought you could be, that you always wanted to be? Mm -hmm. So I closed my eyes and tried to keep my personal space. I had never meditated, and I'm with other people from treatment on the beach. I went to treatment on the beach. Sounds really fancy. It was like an old motel that could have been in like a horror film, and it was turned into a treatment center with 16 beds and seven therapists. Where? Plenty of coverage. So you didn't have By the to. way, treatment centers today, because all I do now is read rehab reviews, have one-to-one. Like literally yeah, one Yeah, but there. this was one-to-one. This was up. They were up your ass. I mean. Where was it? It was in Delray Beach, Florida, which is the uh, recognized epicenter of recovery on the East Coast. Yes. But yeah. Malibu beats them and then, and then they're next. But they're next. Well, it's, it started out Newport as a Beach. pretty humble, Gentile beach community, which... You know, people wanted a respite from the winter. Um, it was a natural gravitational force for people to like be lured there because the weather's so beautiful and it's Florida. And you know, in those days, and it was just retirees, but they're way out west. Don't worry, they die by the turnpike. Right. You know, they don't die on the beach because the beach is too much sand. There's too much water. I'm not going there. So what they did was they were able to get all these properties near West Palm Beach and Delray Beach, which is about. You know, 60 miles north of Miami. Well, and all, but also, what do you think of this? Like, places that are amazing to bottom out in are amazing to get sober in, which is why places like that. I didn't know anything about that. When I, when I ended up there, it was just kismet. It was magic. Like, 
I'd been homeless in New York City during the winter. I'd lost my job at a major network as a sports producer. I ended up under a bridge in lower Manhattan. I used my friend's home as an outpost to like shower. He didn't even know I was homeless. He was a good friend of mine. He just left the keys with the doorman and I would go there and I would use and... Why did he think he was leaving the keys if he didn't know you were homeless? Well, the thing is, he was a dress buyer at Macy's, a really good buddy of mine. He was the head dress buyer at Macy's. And he was a sports fan from Boston. And I used to get him hired to work on the set of NFL Today at CBS Mm -hmm. as a stringer. He would just come on the set on Sundays and he was in heaven. All the TVs were there. This is pre-direct TV. This is pre... You know, so he would be like in sports fan heaven. I would hire him as a per diem employee and he would work there. So here I am, you know, running around the studio, working at a major network, doing everything I'm doing. And I'm hiring him out. And he didn't care if it was one dollar or a thousand dollars. He got like, I think it was one hundred and twenty five bucks to come just keep track of the games, so that when they went to commercial, the talent would know where the games are. Field goal, touchdown, whatever's happening in Mm -hmm. the game. And he'd report. So he was a reporter. He was on the set. He thought it was so cool. So we were good buddies. Mm -hmm. He was from Boston. And he knew me to be working there. And he would leave in the morning at 7 a.m. to go to work. And he would come home at 11 o'clock at night, always entertaining clients. So he would, in that time frame, I'd been fired from CBS. Right. I ended up homeless almost immediately. How long were you homeless? I was homeless from like August until Christmas. Mm Mm-hmm. No place to go. Mm-hmm. And couldn't tell anybody that I had fallen on such hard times. Well, you're right. I'd been using angel dust and crack together for a couple of years prior to that. You're our first uh, angel dust alumni to come on the Am podcast. I? Yeah. Well, as that, far as I know. It was readily available in, in Spanish Harlem. Right. I think and it still may be. It, oh, it is. There's a neighborhood, 116th and Lenox in a pistane building with a bodega on the corner. I would take the six train up to that neighborhood. I would purchase my angel dust. And then one day, the guy who sold me my angel dust also said, have you tried crack yet? Mm-hmm. And I said, no. And he said, yeah, you should try it. So I said, all right. So he sold me the crack with the angel dust. I had no idea how to use crack. Mm-hmm. So I would sprinkle it in to the pipe with the angel dust. Mm-hmm. Were you smoking angel dust before that? I, yeah. I'd been using it with a friend and we had a falling out. Gee, that never happens. Never. And so I began to, I was the guy running in to go get the angel dust and he would mix it with pot. Mm -hmm. However, um, when I broke up as friends with this guy, Mm -hmm. I just started going to that building myself, getting the stuff. Mm -hmm. And to make a long story short, I began my love affair with angel dust. Now I, I didn't drink until I was 18 Mm -hmm. and I didn't start smoking pot until social fear hit my life in college where there were women. I'd always gone to all-boys school. Mm -hmm. So when I was socially involved, I knew I couldn't measure up looks-wise, socially. I'm I'm not the actual guy that all the women wanted. I was the one that had to talk someone into being pinned under me. (laughs) So essentially, sex and relationships had escaped me all through my years of being an Episcopalian all-boys school in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. What part of Connecticut are you from? Lich- oh, well, I'm not from there, but I went to school there. Where are you from? I, I went to Kent, Connecticut. I went to school in Kent. Oh, do you went to the Kent boarding school? No, I went to the South Kent school. Okay. It's where the people who got thrown out of Kent went. <laughs> but you skipped that step? You didn't, did you go to Kent and get thrown no, out? No, I was, well, I was, a, I was a child savant. I was a musical savant genius when I was five. Mm-hmm. That was labeled. That was it. Five years old, my parents took me to see The Sound of Music. I came home from the show never having touched the piano in our house, sat down at the piano and began to play by ear the songs from the show. That's insane. Which then got me an interview at Juilliard, which then had me labeled as a genius. I was already such a bright child. I was a gifted child. I was so brilliant. But now 
I could play piano without reading music. And now I was being trained by Juilliard people as this genius musician. Mm-hmm. At what age? At five. Oh, my God. So, okay, just back up one bit. You were not from Connecticut, so where were you from? But I was already hiding Oreos. Okay, we'll get to that in a second. Where, I had a stash where of was Oreos. Sarge born? A stash of Twinkies. Okay. I, I, Yodels. I can't wait to hear. Ho-hos. But, but so, Steven, Stevie. which I just learned. It was Stevie. Okay. I was Stevie. I was chubby, freckled, multiracial in the early 60s. I was adopted at birth. The story goes, I was traded for a babka and a marble crumb cake. That's, what does that mean? My birth mother had, had a relationship. She was an Orthodox Jewish woman who was a graduate student at Northwestern. Mm-hmm. She had a relationship, albeit very short, with a civil rights activist in Chicago whose identity we do not know. But you know your mother. I met my mother when I was 39 oh my God. over the phone. You've never met her in person? I've never met her in person. Wow. The okay. records were sealed, and she did not want anything to do with this birth, primarily because she came from a very extremely Jewish family, and her relationship with a black man would have ostracized her from the family forever, because what we know about extreme Jewish backgrounds is that even if you're a drug addict, the family turns their back on you almost like a runt of the litter that needs to be ignored. What, if, yeah, if you're a drunk or a drug addict in the Orthodox Jewish, in the Hasidic Jewish faith... Um, you, they turn their back on you almost like you're a murderer or a rapist or something much worse than that. But she was not that. She just had had an interracial Well, she stooped a black guy so, in, those, in that context. Right. Which made her... A pariah. Yeah. I mean, the scarlet letter, the whole thing. I mean, a but pariah. Did, but nobody knew? She kept it quiet? Well, she immediately, when she found out she was pregnant, she was heavy, so she didn't know she was pregnant immediately. And when she began to realize that, for some reason, was jettisoned off to Miami Beach... And her only designate was that I'd be adopted by a Jewish family because she was white and she didn't tell anybody that the father of the baby was a black man because she knew that would have made the uh, the adoption impossible, perhaps. In those days, I mean, they were still drinking out of separate water fountains. Right. So 1961, I was born. So 1960, I was conceived. It was the height of the unrest in Chicago and this, you know, groundswell of racial whatever going on. And so she never divulged the identity of the other person. Even when I contacted her through a website called kinsolving.com, filled out a questionnaire, told them everything about myself. They told me that if uh, in 18 months they hadn't heard from me, my case would not be solved. At about 17 months and 28 days, I get a call from a very joyous man in North Carolina who said, we've solved your case. You owe us $3,900 and we'll give you your family tree and we'll email it to you. And I said, well, can't you tell me what... she'll talk to me or... Well, I didn't know that. Right. So I sent them a check for $3,900, which I got from my mother because I didn't have 4,000 laying around to give to some happy voice in North Carolina. Right. And um, I got this family tree and I began by calling cousins who are closer to me in their date of birth range to find out more about my birth mother before I just dropped this on her. Right. Because she hadn't heard from me and never knew. There was a Vegas number and an Illinois number. And I called and left a message and got no call back. So I called some cousins. They told me that their aunt had never um, had a child and, um, and was never married. So I don't know. I assumed she was gay, maybe, or mm-hmm. something. She was very active in Illinois governmental politics with the governor. Mm-hmm. And she was in the state house or something. I don't know. I didn't get a lot. But they told me there were lots of pictures of prominent civil rights leaders in her home mm-hmm. on the piano and on the walls. 
So I left her a message, never heard from her. And, you know, uh, it wasn't until I was in Las Vegas uh, at Caesars Palace uh, working a big gig. My name was on the marquee on the strip. I thought that was so cool. Mm -hmm. I was with my first wife by the pool Mm -hmm. with the misters going. Mm -hmm. And I saw my name up there and I thought, I got to call somebody. And I started rifling through my phone to call somebody and go, can you believe this? I'm in I've made it in show business. Mm -hmm. And I get to this number. And it's a 702 number. Mm-hmm. And I dialed the number. And this woman picked up and said, who is this? And I said, does the date June 1st, 1961 mean anything to you? Who is this? You know, so and this started okay. the whole thing. And she goes, where are you? And I said, well, it doesn't matter where I am. I just wanted to let you know that I wanted to thank you for not having an abortion. Mm-hmm. I'm not looking to make you a talk show guest so that Dr. Phil can reveal you or we can be on Oprah. I don't need money. I just wanted to thank you for the decision you made when you were a young woman, because I'm about to embark on having my own family, and I didn't want to pass the same racial or personal confusion about my background to my heirs. I wanted to know what I am, because I've never known what I am. Mm -hmm. And I'm about to turn 40. Mm -hmm. I have some suspicions about what I am, but I don't know what I am. Mm -hmm. And I need to know, who's my father? What are you? What's the deal? Like, I don't have any health information. I have nothing. So she said, what are your parents' names? So I told him, you know, Fran and Chet. So she said, uh, where are they from? So I told her. And then all of a sudden, as I began to give her more information, it, it dawned on her and she began to furnish me with something. Mm-hmm. And we spoke for an hour and a half while I walked around the pool trying to keep reception and with my phone. Remember, phones were even worse than they are mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And we talked and um, she just told me that her, my birth father was black. He was very musical. Um, he was very well known. I don't remember his name, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know anything about him anymore. It was a very short relationship. I gave you up for adoption. What else do you want? So I said, well, I'm, you know, she goes, where are you? I said, I'm in Las Vegas. She goes, well, that's odd. I'm in Las Vegas. She says, what are you doing here? I said, I'm an entertainer. Well, wh- what are you doing? I said, I'm performing at Caesar's Palace. She said, who are you? And I said, I'm Sarge. She go, isn't that ridiculous? <laughs> I said, what? She said, well, I was going to come see your show with a friend last night, but she wasn't feeling well. Oh, my God. I said, well, I'll leave you tickets for the rest of the run, and you can either feel free to find me afterwards or not. This is my home phone number. This is my website. And, you know, I'm putting it in your court because I don't want to intrude on your life. I have a great life. I've evolved. I have family. I have parents. I have a wife. I have a career. Mm -hmm. I'm sober. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? I said, well, it doesn't... To you, maybe nothing. I said, but to me, I had a problem with drugs and alcohol. Anyhow, I left tickets and never saw her and never heard from her again. Um, The name Sarge comes from college, the first day of uh, Boston University in 80. Mm -hmm. Um, The guys gave me a nickname. I was never popular. So having a nickname to me was the coolest thing in the world. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't a bad nickname. No. You know. What's the origin? They just thought I looked like a character from Beetle Bailey. Um question so they so, called me sarge so in terms of genetic predisposition to alcoholism as far as you know you she didn't offer up information like oh my dad was an alcoholic too or something like that i have a different belief in okay. genetic predisp i mean i believe we're pr- genetically predisposed mm-hmm. but it, i mean i know just as many patients and people who had you no, know yeah. donna reed backgrounds as had the father slugging it out with the mom in the kitchen and i will tell you though out of the people that i've talked to on this and the people I just am nosy with in general, I have yet to find someone who didn't have some random relative. Yeah. I mean, I don't even think about it because right. I think about the genetic in my bones, in my bloodstream, 
uh, hell-bent desire to destroy myself. And even more than that, forget about the genetic predisposition. I mean, what predates any knowledge of anything like that was I always, always was ashamed of myself. Mm-hmm. Before I even knew that I was ashamed of myself, I was, right. uh, myself, I was ashamed. How did that manifest? Self-hate is the core of our disease. Yeah. Yay. Self-punishment. The using of poison, the ingesting of things which take you out of your life or out of your body mm-hmm. or out of your sublet, <laughs> as it were. I mean, you know, it's about self-hatred and I always hated me. I always was uncomfortable. I, I come from a very rageful, loud, argumentative family and, and, and an OCD, anal retentive, obsessive, compulsive people mm-hmm. who just fight and argue and shout and name call and rage a hall. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I never felt in sorts. I never felt I belonged to that family. I never felt comfortable. I was never okay. Um, I was never okay with my body. I was never okay with my life. I was never okay with me. I was always picked on from the earliest time I can remember on the bus to private school before I went to boarding school. The kids always told me that my mother wasn't my mother. Mm -hmm. And I always made her hide behind the tree when the bus came because I just didn't want to put that thought. I mean, it was merciless. The attack on me. And remember, it was the early 60s. It's 1965, 1966, right. 1967. Um, people still had not uh, developed any fondness for anything other than what they were. So, well, And I was everything other than that. I had an afro. I'm beige or mocha colored. Uh-huh. I have freckles. Uh-huh. I'm short. I'm chubby. Uh, well, I'm adopted. I don't look like my mother. I'm everything you couldn't be at that time in order to draw that kind of attention. Um, in terms of turning that around, I mean, I know formative years are everything. That's what I think. You know, when I came into, uh, you know, recovery rooms, you were like the coolest guy there. I'm going to tell you, I remember, I don't remember what happened yesterday, but I, when I was new, you were like in charge of shit, Sergeant Charge, and I still remember hearing you speak. And I remember you talking about because it was like I told you yesterday. It was like the first thing that like I remember consciously laughing really hard mm-hmm. in sobriety was mm-hmm. listening to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like this thing. It was just this like thing about how you when you would eat as a kid, your mom would just go over the sink. Right. Yeah, you weren't allowed to crumb in my house. Yeah. Um, so she would yell over the sink, over the sink. And I really, like, uh, it became one of the first jokes in my comedy career. Yeah. Was that, you know, you weren't allowed to crumb. I thought my name was over the sink. You know, right. that by the time it. I was 14, I thought my name was over the sink. But I mean, what I was doing, you know, the way you knew me and when you came in, which was roughly what year? Uh, 2000. Okay, so I'd already been sober at that point for about 10 years. Yeah. So I was already had my feet under me. Yeah. I'm in Los Angeles at that point about four years. Mm-hmm. I wasn't killing it in show business, which is really why I came out. Mm-hmm. But what I found when I came to LA was that I'd found AA meetings and I, there I go. Yeah, I've no. just broke my anonymity, just... but I don't, you know what? I found meetings. Yeah. I found meetings. I found people. I found friends. I fell into heaven. I, I you know, I, here I am, a new guy in a new town that everyone knows everybody in, mm-hmm. and everyone knew me in there, and that's that was fine for me. Mm-hmm. I didn't care mm-hmm. that everyone knew me um, in show business. Mm-hmm. I wanted that desperately. Right. I wanted the public to know me. I wanted show business to know me. Instead, I had people from the public and people from show business who were sober. In my meetings, yeah. who knew me, and it didn't really matter to me that much anymore that I wasn't becoming famous and gigantically star successful in show business mm-hmm. 
I had my little corner of the universe, and you know what? I was... It, it actually satiated me. It made me okay. It made yeah. me well. And what you saw was me already having been here for four years and me already being one of the few people who brings huge laughter to meetings and speaking places mm-hmm. and appearing. I was already sponsoring lots of people. Um, I was finding my groove. I was already married, um, which was an ill-fated first marriage. It was a starter marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, you got another one now? I have, I, I have the one now. Mm-hmm. But then it was a dancer. I mm-hmm. saw her on stage doing Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I should have known because she was on the left going, he had it coming. He had it coming. <laughs> she had her foot up on the chair doing Flossy Moves. God speaks Mose. through other people sometimes. He sings through other people. She was young. She, yeah. was, she was 19 when I met her, 20 when we got married. Yeah, well. And I was 34. Okay. It was a 14-year differential. Yeah. But we're in showbiz. We're right. artists. Right, right, right. There's no age to that. Yeah. It wasn't like, uh, you know, I wasn't executing some sort of uh, mission of mine to constantly corral young women. Mm-hmm. And I also had tremendous foundational recovery because I had the most amazing sponsor mm-hmm. who taught us you don't date new people that are trying to get well because when you get in between God and a woman who's trying to get her life together... You get crushed. Like yeah. he taught us that. You yeah. will get crushed. Yeah. You may get laid. You may have some fun. Right. You may have some arm candy. Right. You will get crushed. But she wasn't new. She was. She wasn't one in the program. Us. Yeah. She wasn't in any kind of program. She was a dancer. She was from England. She drank culturally. Right. Right. Do um did you ever uh, ignore your sponsor and go into that realm? No. He married. Um. And he like he ordained. You know. I mean, at that point, I'm seven, eight years sober, mm-hmm. and. He just told me, listen, you know, if you're happy, do what you got to do. Do what you're, because ultimately she was from England and she couldn't work here unless, I mean, that kind of pushed the issue. She couldn't work here and she was in the formative and, um, you know, fantastic years of her dance performing life. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want our relationship to stand in the way of her working or not working in America. Mm -hmm. So we kind of got married because we agreed we were in love. Mm -hmm. We went to a, uh, an attorney who handles immigration. We tried to find every way around it. And then he finally said, look, if you love each other, get married. Look, what worst comes to worst, you can always get unmarried. Yeah. And you know, as a natural progression of things, she ended up sleeping with everyone in town, but me. And she was young and wasn't ready to embrace the commitment of a permanent monogamous relationship. And how many people are, really? Yeah. So when it came to light that there was an affair, um, all of my recovery resources surrounded me and said, just help her pack, dude. Help her pack. She's on another journey. You took an oath to love and to cherish in sickness and in health, better or worse, rich or poor. This is worse. This is poor. This is sickness. Mm Mm-hmm. Just support her in her journey, help her pack. And that helped to kind of pull the plug on the sting of having to dissolve a marriage. But it was only after I went back to Florida where I'd gotten clean to begin with that I went to a men's retreat at a nunnery. Mm-hmm. And a man who was a union leader, who I'm very dear friends with to this day, but he's a union leader. He's like one of these guys that speaks from the podium and pounds it and talks to thousands of people with this kind of voice, you know. And he's at the front of a men's retreat at a nunnery, which I begrudgingly agreed to go to because mm-hmm. a lot of meditating holding hands it was all men and and i went and i'm sitting in the back and on the first day he's at the podium going if she ain't got god you ain't got shit to do with her mm-hmm. if she ain't got god you ain't got shit and he said it like nine times mm-hmm. and i sat and i thought and i thought as an alcoholic you know how does this apply to me mm-hmm. and it applied to me perfectly because 
I never even bothered to vet her spiritual connectedness. Right. I just went off the chain in love, off the tracks. Mm -hmm. I thought this was sent by the universe for me. And as it turns out, it was. Mm -hmm. Because 17 days after I filed for divorce from that woman, I met my wife in an elevator on a cruise ship. Mm -hmm. And she was the woman who would become my wife. Mm -hmm. Only after waiting the entirety of my alimony term, which was 27 months Mm -hmm. before forming another permanent relationship with another woman. Mm -hmm. My sponsor put that out there too. Smart. Don't form a permanent relationship with her until you're finished paying for the last mistake you made. Well, interestingly, as we were talking about when you came in, or now I can't remember if we were talking about it when we were already recording, but saying yes. We were talking about when you came in. Um, we and me, me when you came enough in. about that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, what do you think of that? That you, I mean, there's, to be fair, a lot of funny guys and a lot of funny women in program. Yes. But the fact that you were the first one I remember killing is a big deal to me. And you know, thank you. But it's such a gift to hear you say that because I, I hear that all the time. And it has given birth to, finally, after, you know, Christmas will be 24 years I've been clean and sober. It's given birth to me pushing my life mission in the direction of of your reaction to me. Mm-hmm. In other words, I've had that reaction for so many years from so many people. And in the natural gravitational force of the universe... It took me deeper and deeper into being dedicated to helping people lighten their journey. It started out as getting laughs to get paid. Right. It then turned into getting laughs as comic relief for people who had been crying and tragic for so long, finding their laugh. And so many people said to me, I hadn't laughed so hard and I'd forgotten what it was to laugh really hard when not on mushrooms right. or not stoned, laughing right. at something in a movie or something going on at a party or something. You know, people were talking about, wow, I, 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 I couldn't remember the last time I laughed that hard and my stomach hurt and my face hurt and you were so on. Well, anyhow, my career, as it were, changed because my career is being a sober person. Right, right. My jobs are gigs. My career is answering the phone. You know, I always say this. You call me at three in the morning and interrupt my sleep. I have no problem with it. I am there for you wherever you need me. Don't interrupt my nap. Like, right. my nap is sacrosanct. If you, why did you wake me up? I was having a nap, you know. Call me at four in the morning and say, we need to be 80 miles away because so-and-so is on a window ledge. We all just get together and go. Do you but get he, those calls a lot? All the time. I, well, really? I sponsor many people. I mean, I, I have a boatload of guys that I... Um, and that's really the essence of my life. That has changed my life. Because my, when I was in Hollywood, I was too busy to work with people because I was so busy pursuing hustling. my career and hustling. And people would ask me, would you work with me? Could you help me? Could you help me with step work? Could you help me with this or that? And I'd say, well, you need somebody that's around all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm really busy. Mm-hmm. And I would be doing you an injustice by saying yes because I'm not always in town. I'm always out of town. I'm always out of town. But it was me actually not wanting to make the commitment. Right. It was me giving my number out to people, but hoping they wouldn't call because it might interrupt my selfishness. It might interrupt 
my life. It might come at a bad time. You know, screening calls. I answer on the first ring if I can. Mm -hmm. And I am always there because I realize it's the universe calling me into action. It's the universe inviting me to participate in what I've given my oath to do. Mm -hmm. So it's the universe keeping me honest Mm -hmm. by dedicating myself to that. So really, after the divorce, after moving to Florida, after finding a new woman that I was over the moon about, you know, a baby came shortly thereafter and it was a son. And, you know, and then my family moved from New York. My parents moved to be closer to us so that. And so my entire life is a gift to others, really. Mm-hmm. My performances are a gift to others. Mm-hmm. The availability with which I conduct my whole life is mm-hmm. a gift to others. Mm-hmm. Um, my wisdom, my humor, mm-hmm. my presence, my eye contact, mm-hmm. my being. And, you know, my whole life was changed by a drunk man who was my idol you know, telling me backstage one night, you know, um, I was a horrible father. I was a shitty son. I was a horrific husband. I was so busy being me out in the world, on TV, everywhere, doing what I was doing, that I never bothered to be those things. He says, if you ever get a chance to be those things, you don't get do-overs. Mm-hmm. When, the, when, the world sent, when, the, when the Lord sends you people mm-hmm. in your life, it's your job to be who you're supposed to be to those people, not who you decide to be, not when it's convenient, not when it's good for you. Mm-hmm. He said, so if you have a chance to be a father, a, su- a husband, and a son, be those things and let the Sarge part just do whatever it does. And I didn't really realize how prophetic that was, but those are my marching orders. That, and this was a man who had just finished a bottle of Tangeray and then went out in front of 3,000 people and did his show for the four millionth time since 1949, mm-hmm. right? He was my idol. He mm-hmm. grew up in my hometown. He was lived, I grew up in his hometown. Mm-hmm. And when I heard that, it's just been my... Mar- I, I, it, it's been a constant pull towards priority. Mm-hmm. Your priorities, if you're going to stay well and get weller and get weller, mm-hmm. continuously pull you in the direction of right prioritization. Mm-hmm. Right prioritization means dedication to making the world a better place. One person, one conversation, one gig, one whatever at a time. Mm-hmm. It's not about me getting anything. It's mm-hmm. not me acquiring anything. It's not about me being known to people that I don't know. First of all, I don't even like people I don't know knowing me. Mm-hmm. It's annoying. Mm-hmm. I don't want, you know, fame has you. Mm-hmm. You don't have it. Money has you. Mm-hmm. You don't have it. So if there was a lesson here in, 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 in Los Angeles and in Hollywood that I learned from watching The Revolving Door of recovery mm-hmm. spin, mm-hmm. I started to be grateful for my journey, not constantly bitter that my journey wasn't like his. Right. How come I'm not getting this? I'm funnier than him. I go to meetings. You know, there was a very phenomenal mentor in my life named Paul B. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember Paul B. He gave the know. best, he gave the best non-sexual hugs around town oh, oh wait light skin black man glasses rolls oh, royce yeah he was my he was my hero and um he he took me on as a son not as you know in a mentorship capacity he sunned me yeah and he had a sponsee a guy he worked with who was always getting all the shit that i wanted mm-hmm. the movies the specials the deals the animated series the money the mansion and all everything and he used to say to me bro he ain't got what you got man he ain't never gonna have what you have 
Mm-hmm. He used the N-word a lot, but mm-hmm. he, I, which I won't do because mm-hmm. we don't do that. But we got it. You know, he said, he ain't never going to have what you have, bro. He ain't never going to. He said, you got what you got, and he ain't never going to have what you got. And um, that wasn't satisfying to me. Right. At that time. Right? Be a father, be a husband, be a son. How unsexy. How boring. Mm-hmm. You mean there's no strange? You mean there's no fooling around? There's no, you know. So There's no high with that. The wisdom jumps out. Mm-hmm. The high is when you get a text message from somebody that sat there in treatment while you were doing your thing. A guy that looked like a skeleton. A guy that was up on you know, masked robbery charges in his home jurisdiction and this guy's staying clean and he attributes a lot of what you said when he was sitting there with his with his fist on his chin, mm-hmm. staring at you, you know, in a in a in a horrible way, and now that guy stay I think the worst cases are the ones that shock us, but really, if you're a criminal and you're a drug addict and you are just on the last legs, so many of those guys generate momentum from the extreme to get well. Mm-hmm. And so many of the ones in the middle without the generational extreme yeah. just teeter. It doesn't make. I think momentum has a lot to do with if you're an extreme person. You can be an extreme person the way you need to be in order to be us. Yeah, I think it's true. But I think that extreme is not always visible. You know, for mm-hmm. me, I the reason I jumped in and the reason I sort of continue to try to be as enthusiastic as I am is that I was so miserable. You wouldn't have looked at me and said, oh, wow, like she's gone really far down. But I knew, I knew it. I don't know if anybody else knew it. You know, it's like, you know, that whole thing when it's the last house on the block. Like, where are you going to go but up? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. But only you knew how you were feeling about you. Yeah. Yeah. Outwardly, you were sexy and attractive. God bless you. You were gaunt and sick and vulnerable. Oh, no. Oh, I thought you meant when I came in. I was like, thank you. No, Um, you're even more stunning now because I can appreciate you non-sexually. Like, I can appreciate you as a gorgeous, young, intelligent, no, dedicated, creative, imaginative, passionate, resourceful woman. Like, I can, like, appreciate you like that. I can love the shit out of you sitting here. But that has, where that's what we're talking about. It's coming from a real place. I'm not sitting here trying to get you upside down. Right. Now. Sideways. I haven't. No, no, really. I mean, no, I, I know, at, but you never, I mean, I, you never struck me as that. Because type. I was trained. My foundational recovery does not allow me, yeah. no matter how much I want to bed you, or no matter how badly I want some sexual destination for my ridiculous imagination, mm-hmm. like I was taught by great men, mm-hmm. leave them alone. Yeah. So I've always taken coaching. I haven't always liked it, right. and I haven't always wanted to follow it. But I was, I was done when I was done. And the only way to know if you were done when you were done is to look back and go, I must have been done because I never did it again. Yeah. But I, I was on a journey and I, I was being prepared for today. Like, I believe that. Like sitting with you. Yeah. We're in Hollywood. We're doing this awesome podcast that stars have done with you. Right. People that you felt lucky to have in your, in your little studio. I feel lucky to have you too. I know you do. But when I listen to some of your other work, I, I, I mean, I'm thinking, oh my God, Moby. Oh my God, this one. Oh my God, that one. I'm thinking... But you know what? What I know today is as sober, as sober, as sober, as sober, it's like we're as successful 
in life as we could be right now today, as awesome as we could ever be. We've never been better than we are right now because we've never been this clean. We've never been this clear. We've never been this close to reaching um, the top. It's almost like climbing Everest. Mm -hmm. We've had so many Sherpas. Mm -hmm. And we don't leave Everest, even though we have to go down because the air is so thin. Mm -hmm. The view stays with us. The vision stays with us. And we're really supposed to explain the view to others so that they will have the energy to make the trek with you because at some point you become a Sherpa and you take people to the top and it's almost like a daily occurrence for you, but a lot of them don't make the journey. A lot of them die on the way up. A lot of them get there and then they can't see. Mm -hmm. A lot of them don't keep the vision. So those of us who are able to keep that vision so vivid of how great it... You know, you hear people just throw it around. My life is beyond its wildest dreams. It's so amazing. No, tell me what that is for you. Yeah. Don't just use vernacularized, you know... What have become cliches, of course. It is cliche. Yeah. I'm embarking on a life right now. It finally all adds up for me. When you say what you said, what you said about your perception of me... Mm -hmm. When you first met me, and it's really the reason why I'm sitting here today, mm-hmm. without Grammys or Emmys on the shelf, right? Without um, the model wife and the mansion home or the massive amounts of access that I might have. Um, the core of what you said, and say it again, like what, what happened for you when you saw me and what you remember from the beginning of your journey? Well, just that, and, and I want to like expand on what you had said before. You had said people didn't remember laughing except when they were on mushrooms or whatever. I hadn't laughed in like probably like three or four or five years. And I thought that I never would again. It didn't occur to me I ever would again. And, um, you know, my idea, what kept me away from program was in sobriety was just like, oh, well, there's no fun to be had. I mean, like, it surrendered the idea of fun. It was like, well, I figure those people, like, if the tedium of their life gets so bad, they're like, well, what should we, we could go to a play. Like, we could play checkers. Like, I, that's what I actually thought. And so my greatest discovery when I got in there was like, not only am I going to have fun, but I haven't been having fun. I thought I'd convinced myself I'd been having fun. Mm-hmm. And so and so it's hard to make me laugh. Like, I'm a more like, oh, that was really funny than an actual laugher. So, you know, to experience like the oxytocin that goes through, you know, the body when you have that was just... It was monumental. Is that an acne medication? Oxytocin? <laughs> do you not know about oxytocin? I do. I'm it joking. It rules my universe. I'm joking. Yeah. I, was, I know. I, I'm being silly myself. Yes. So just sit back and just go, that was funny. Like, or that wasn't funny. Or why are you interrupting me? <laughs> I thought all of those things at once. Your reaction is the, um, the bedrock of the rest of my life. Your reaction. Mm-hmm. It finally makes sense to me. I'm not pursuing stardom Mm -hmm. anymore Mm -hmm. i stopped pursuing stardom a long long time ago i'm pursuing having the way you reacted be the cornerstone of my existence and the mission that's behind me appearing everywhere Mm -hmm. I, I, i guess i'm thick i had to hear it several million times right i'm part of people's last laugh on this planet in our room that you and I have shared, mm-hmm. somebody went to their dying father's bedside mm-hmm. across country, somebody you and I both know, and she just come back from burying her dad, and her dad was literally non-communicative, and she rushed to his bedside cross country, 2,600 miles away mm-hmm. to be there, and was there 
And the only time he spoke was when he looked at her and he just started laughing. And he hadn't spoken in weeks. And she said, what are you laughing about, Daddy? And he said, oh, I'm just thinking about this comedian I saw. His name was Marge, Barge, Serge, something. So she said, Sarge? Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. She said, that's my friend. Like, we're very close friends. And he said, you know Sarge? And he says, yeah. And he said, oh, he was so funny. We went to see him perform and he made me laugh. And and I I still think of some of the things he says and some of his jokes about being a black Jew and and all these other things. And and then they laughed together about that with me as a common thread of the conversation. And then he expired. Wow. And she came back and through tears and weeping, recounted this on a group level with me sitting there. And um, it made me think, but still didn't change the context of the direction of my life. And hearing you say this today, I'm now embarking today. Right. In these last few months and in recent times, as a, as a therapist in treatment centers, working with new people who, you know, it's not preaching to the converted like it is speaking to people who are already clean and sober. Yeah. You're talking to people who haven't decided yet if they're going to quit. They haven't decided if they're even in the right place. They haven't decided if this isn't just something to get the heat off from the court or because they have no place else to go or their parents' insurance is still good or whatever, whatever, whatever. Now we've taken their devices away and their Oxy and their heroin mm-hmm. and their Dilaudids mm-hmm. and their crystal meth lab. Mm-hmm. We've taken all that away now and they're sitting there furious at themselves but not really aware of the fact that they're furious at themselves. They're furious at whoever sent them here. They're furious at you for talking. They're furious at this chair. They're furious for their sneakers, whatever it turns out to be. And there I am having fun with them, making them laugh and showing up really as a representative of the universe and saying, dude, Mm -hmm. you know, well, what's about all this God stuff? What's I don't, God, I hate God. I have nothing to do with God. I'm atheist. I said, really? Let's talk about the universe. Let's talk about the planets being exactly where they're supposed to be. Does that not blow your mind? Mm -hmm. Stars are in the sky. When you look up, is your mind not blown? Mm -hmm. The sun stays exactly the right distance away from here to sustain life on this planet. And within telescope range, we don't see anything else but dust and holes and cold and wind and gases. I said, over here, you look at the ocean when you fly over it, you see water. It's filled with life. It's a whole universe. You look in the sky, it's a whole universe. Watch the Discovery Channel. There's millions of different things with horns and hooves, things that, and, and nothing has to tell any of those things how to be what they are. Mm-hmm. They all wake up in the morning or continue to exist or never go to sleep exactly with an order and they eat each other and they don't eat each other and stars die and stars are born. Planets keep doing what they're doing. Yaks graze and then one of them trips and then lions have lunch giraffes are born 26 feet off the ground and land and before a baby giraffes even used its legs there's something that wants to come eat it so it has to run Mm -hmm. i haven't even walked yet i'm running Mm -hmm. the world works everything works in perfect order i'm the only one that's got to show up at these get-togethers so i can ask people the questions about life should i go to the supermarket Mm -hmm. should i call this woman i met who gave me her number you know, should I go to this party? What time should I leave the wedding? Like, what shoes should I wear? Mm-hmm. Should I sit up? Is that a good place to go? Mm-hmm. You know, so only we need this much guidance. So what I pray for is the same guidance that runs the tides, which are listed in the paper, mm-hmm. like what time the tide comes in, right. sundown, you know, 
the solstice, all these things are on a time schedule. Put me on that schedule, please. I want that order. I want to know who I am just based on me being on this planet Mm -hmm. because there is a supposed to be me. Mm-hmm. I finally reached the supposed to be me. Mm-hmm. I've become the me I'm capable of being, which I never could have dreamt or imagined. But the supposed to be me, people don't like supposed to be's. They want to yeah. be what they're going to be. Oh, yeah. There is a supposed to be me. You and I are supposed to be sitting here right now. Yeah. And I'm becoming... And, and look, at the, look at the time schedule. You've been the supposed to be you much longer than I've been the supposed to be me. I haven't even been aware of the fact that I was supposed to be... How do you know? Because I'm looking at your life and I'm looking at what you're up to and I'm looking at what you're doing and what you're dedicated to. And I see it as an amazing, faithful, you're being so full of faith. And But we all are. I mean, I wasn't like, oh, okay, 14 years ago, you know what I'm going to do? You know, in 14 years, I'm going to have this side. I'm going to, you know, it, it's that thing where I've had a lot of jobs in those years and I've had a lot of dark times where I didn't think I was... Doing, I thought it had all been a waste. And then you get to a point, kind of like what you're talking about, where you look back and you go, oh my God, I was being led this entire time. I didn't even want to go to that job. Mm-hmm. I didn't even mm-hmm. want to go to that city. And yet clearly I wouldn't be here. Yeah, but look I at you. You, 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 you. The reason why I, my hat's off to you in some ways is because you, you, do, you can do things I, I haven't been able to do yet. Like what? You write books. I need to write my book. I can't, I, I just, it's something that's so hard for me. I'm, try- I'm, I'm a communicator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, just get a tape recorder and talk into it and just tell your story and then get somebody for $8 an hour to transpose it into, you know, <laughs> everyone's got their, you know, way of doing it. I've just, I don't know why. I'm not, a, I'm not scared to do it. I'm mm-hmm. just so, I'm a great writer. Mm-hmm. I'm a, an amazing I writer. Believe you. Yeah, I believe I, I mean, when I write, I write stream of consciousness, free mm-hmm. associative. Mm-hmm. It's brilliant. It's mm-hmm. articulate. Mm-hmm. It's words. I mean, I'm not bragging. I'm just saying it's amazing, but... It's so hard for me. And then I hear, oh, she's a best-selling author. She's got the event. She's writing. And I, and I read some of your writing and I go, it's so brilliant. And like, she does it. Oh That's God. what she's doing. She hasn't been distracted by the performing part. Like, I've been performing. I've been a, I'm almost like in a routine groove. It's almost like the phone rings. How much do you want to come to Vancouver? Yeah. How much do you want to come to Indiana? 20000 7500 I'll do it for free. Yeah. Is there going to be people there? Great. Uh, just book my flight. Yeah, yeah. Like, whatever it is. A dollar. 11000 No right. dollars. Whatever it is, as long as I have someplace to be, I'm validated. Yeah. So changing the course of my life involves sitting at the screen and jamming mm-hmm. somehow, mm-hmm. getting it out because you got to have the book because people have to go, now this book is really interesting. Like you have to, you have to have the merch. You have to have the book. I don't have the book. I don't have a hit song. I don't have a hook. I'm me. Okay, I'm but my in, hit song. In 30 seconds, I could tell you why that's not a good idea, but I don't want to discourage you from that. Discourage me. Oh, well, I'd love to discourage you from that. There is no more abysmal existence than writing books for a living at all. All And when I say what I just said about the path and, you know, it was miserable. I'm never doing it again. Let the record show I'm never doing it again because I couldn't learn. I had to do six to figure out that it w- I was never going to make a living at it. And it was never going to feel good. In the, in the guy side of it, I envision you in your nighty at the computer and me <laughs> bringing you tea and things to eat to sustain you. And when people call me, they go, what's Anna doing? I go, she's writing her book and I just brought her breakfast. Aren't I romantic? Like, yeah, it's something so like cool that. about yeah. you, honey being up to something so dignified and so phenomenal and so ingenious and brilliant and articulate, right? The fact that it's, it's noble, it's phenomenal. And I know the world's filled with books that no one's reading. Yeah. Everyone's downloading Crichton things and all kinds of things, right? So 
once again, I'm always in awe of people that can do things that I haven't attempted. Uh, well, I, I mean, this is... And I I'm attempting. Know. Trust me, I'm attempting. Well, good. And, you know, the thing is, yeah, as long as one does it without expectations of anything happening, which I don't know how to do anything like that, <laughs> but but I think that that's a, a way to go into it. But But the other thing is, I don't know if you have this, but like anything I can do, I assume is easy. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm me just, too. Like, like I play the piano. I do that. I sit down yeah. in front of 3,000 people and I have them shout out songs. I write them all down on a legal pad and then I play all the songs in a medley. Mm-hmm. Now, I have musician friends who are genius musicians and they go, dude, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous that you can do that. But I had to fi- I'm, a, I'm a product of design. I had to find a way to use my piano skills within the context of my comedy just to fill time. I was only looking to add another, oh my God, I can't believe he can do that. Yeah. It's not even, it wasn't even the mainstream of what I did. It was like, I'm a stand-up. I was fighting it out as a stand-up with all the other stand-ups. Then um, uh, I'm, 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 I'm fighting it out to find more material or more stuff to do. So now I'm doing the comedy. So then I'm telling the orchestra to play a few bars of something and then I'm singing with an orchestra. So then they go, dude, um, we, can, can, we can do songs with you in your show, mm-hmm. but we would appreciate it if you would have charts made up so that we would know what notes to play. <laughs> because we can't just work off the top of our head like you. So then I got charts done. And then I started doing songs in my show. Then I started singing like people. Like I had voices. Yeah, like Harry Connick Jr. or Sinatra or this one, Sammy Davis, you know, Black Jew. So there was all that synergy. So then I started doing all this hokey stuff with the band. And then I started doing the piano and then I started doing the comedy. And then I turned into this like 60s lounge act, which... No one else was doing it because no one wanted to. Right. Like, everyone was trying to be the most brilliant. Like, you've had Mark Maron over here, this tortured genius of a guy who's, you know, he used to be very dark and very unapproachable. He's become a wonderful, delicious, evolved soul, but he's become one of us. Yeah. He wasn't like one of us when he went to Boston University when I was there. Yeah. He was like, don't go near him. Yeah. He might stab you with a fork. Right. You know, Um, so we evolve. And thank God I've reached a place where I've evolved that I can be lounge guy. Right. But I'd much rather be a guy that's part of changing the world in a positive way. Yeah. Not by picking up trash on the beach once a week. Right. Not by ladling out soup one day a year at the, at the mission on Thanksgiving for a photo op. Mm-hmm. Those of us who are soldiers carrying a candle in the army of light, our job is to do it every day because... That's what keeps us sober. And that's what feels good, as it turns out. Not always. It doesn't... Yes. Okay. It, eventually... The picking up the trash doesn't, but when... I feel good when I pick up trash, because they told me if I pick up trash, it'll keep you sober. That's what the guy that owned the treatment center that I went to said. He says, if you see something on the ground that isn't where it's supposed to be, throw it away. It'll keep you sober. Yeah, well... I was invited by one of my friends who owns a treatment center in Delray Beach to mm-hmm. come do a show for the patients. Mm-hmm. I came and I did a show for the patients. Mm-hmm. They said, can you come back next week? Mm-hmm. I said, Sure. I said, but you got to pay me the 500 bucks that you paid me this week. Mm -hmm. No problem. Mm -hmm. It was the most incredible thing. They loved it. They want you back. I came back next week. They said, can you come back twice a week? I said, sure, I could. But I'm going to have to come up with other things to say. I can't keep doing what I did. Right. And since I'm such a free associator and I don't go from an act or anything like that, I just show up and be me, which is what it's become. That's the polish. Mm -hmm. That's the magic. That's the evolution. That's prayer. That's the 10 pages out of Illuminata that I read from Marianne Williamson's book, Mm -hmm. 189 to 199, Prayers for Work and Creativity. It's about me being a paintbrush, not the artist or the masterpiece, but a paintbrush. Mm -hmm. That took the whole ego out of it for me. Mm -hmm. That made show business easy. Mm -hmm. 
I'm a paintbrush. Mm-hmm. I'm not the masterpiece. I'm not the artist. I'm, I would, oh, I'm an artist. I'm an, I need certain things. I need certain lighting. I need certain people to cater to me. I need a certain amount of money. I need a certain kind of theater. I'm a, I'm a paintbrush. Mm-hmm. Just the universe uses me to make masterpieces everywhere mm-hmm. on the floor, on the wall, in that room, in that room, in that building, in that theater, at that club, wherever it is. Mm-hmm. I have no choice. I have to say yes. Mm-hmm. That's first of all. So I work for God. I work for the universe. Mm-hmm. I am one of his paintbrushes. Mm-hmm. It's so simple. Mm-hmm. And ever since I started thinking of it that way, so they come back next week, come back twice a week, come back three times a week. Can you do group? I said, of course I can do group. I do groups all the time. I have a group of men that I work with right. who I do every week. We do a group. I got that from my guy. Yeah. He used to do a group with us. I do a group with my guys. Now I'm doing a group with them, but I'm doing it from the context of humor. Yeah. I'm doing it three times Amazing. a week. Can you do it six Jesus. times a week? So. Now they had me in the morning, they had me in the afternoon, they had me with just the women, just the men, at night at 8 o'clock. Then another treatment center said to me, um, I hear you're doing these groups over at, could you come do them at our place? I said, well, uh, um, yeah, sure, but I mean, it's going to be tough fitting you in. Okay, so I come over there. You know, we have five properties. Oh, really? Well, wow. yes, we have an IOP program that happens. At we got the morning thing, we've got the cutters, we got the mutilators, we got the people who are badly behaved, we got the people looking at charges. Can you come over here? Can you come over there? So it's a very tight community. Community. Everybody knows everybody. Oh, Most yeah. of the people are sober that run them and own them. Yeah. So now they start, you know, and I'm doing 16 groups a week. So then I'm invited by a very famous guy's sober brother. Um, whose name I won't, but one of the most famous guys on the planet. He's, you know, he just bought the biggest house in Hollywood. Yeah. Very big megastar. His brother is a sober guy. Mm-hmm. He invites me to do a uh, roast for a guy that owns the biggest treatment center in Florida. Mm-hmm. And so um, I go do the roast. I blow the guy's doors off. He's Middle Eastern, so he couldn't believe it. He had the greatest time. I made fun of his parents. I made fun of him. I made all his vendors, all his clients. Everybody was there. And the guy says, listen, I've got to have you. I hear you're doing groups. You were sent by God. I need to have you i want you to work for me here's how much money i'm going to pay you it's exorbitant but i know you're worth 10 times this but here's the money i want you to come work only at my property and so i go over there so without any kind of certification without any kind of licensure because i'm an entertainer because i'm a legit sober guy for the better part of a quarter of a century mm-hmm. because they already have lots of people with master's degrees who aren't reaching yeah. the people yeah because they've got all of these letters after their name doesn't mean you're going to inspire or motivate people to put down the rig yeah. put down the pills put the plug in the jug you know right so we're finding out the most powerful thing we've ever had available to us like this conversation you and I are having, yeah. is one addict talking to another. Right. Beyond that, what the therapist almost can't do is to say, you are me. I am you. We are us. Do what I do. Copy me. Please copy me. Mm-hmm. Listen to me. Copy me. Think what I think. Do what I do. Mm-hmm. Do what I did. Do what I continue to do. Think what I think. Mm-hmm. Read what I read. Yeah. Live how I live. Yeah. Please listen to me. Trust me. Yeah. And they, you know, they go off the rails. They do what they're going to do. And then they call you later, which also you can't do if you're a therapist because there's HIPAA laws about staying in touch with people. Yeah. You can't talk to anyone you've worked with in therapy for two years. You know, there's Facebook, there's texts. I don't, you know what? Sue me. Okay. When I develop a relationship with somebody and I connect with them and that connection is part of what's saving their life for them. Yeah. It's. I'm duty bound by the universe 
to stay in dialogue with that person yeah. to whatever extent. I am not a sexual predator. I am not irresponsible. Yeah. I answer the phone. I show up when needed. Yeah. You know, I bring the heat. I bring the wisdom. I bring the love. And that's another thing you can't do if you're a therapist. You can love them in the lunchroom with the other therapists, but you can't love them outwardly. I love them. Mm-hmm. You know why? Because men loved me. Mm-hmm. You know why? Because I needed that love because there was a love vacuum, which is what ego is. So by filling the love vacuum, by reaching people with passion, by inviting them to do what you do, which works. It's not sitting in a room with a book that everyone's read from and saying, if you do what we do, then you'll have what we have. That doesn't work. It's not working. One-tenth of one percent of the people that come in there to do that stick. The rest of them are still spinning wildly out of control. And in our context, in the meeting rooms, they say, well, he's still out there doing research. He's finding his bottom. Some of these people can be saved. Yeah. Maybe there's a percentile that we can work with that may be able to reach some of the people that some of the words in those books doesn't work for. Right. Maybe we can hybrid it. Maybe we can vernacularize it. Maybe if a personality was attached, because we don't, you know, we do principles before personalities. Yeah. Sometimes a person, the people that saved my life were all gigantic mega personalities. Right. Those are what I followed. Right. I didn't follow a brochure. Yeah. I didn't follow a download. Yeah. I didn't do what I was told. I couldn't deal with authority figures but I wouldn't have dreamt of not doing something that Jerry H said to do. I wouldn't have dreamt of showing up late to someplace where Jerry H was meeting me. Yeah. And I wouldn't have dreamt of not kneeling when I pray. Yeah. And the only justification for that, that he gave me was because I said so. <laughs> he didn't give me any proof. He didn't give me any science. He didn't give me statistics because I said so was good enough for me. Yeah. For some kids, it's not good enough. Yeah. So we have to find a way of reaching those people that because I said so doesn't reach. We have to be flexible. Yeah. We have to be loving. Yeah. We have to be unconditionally loving. These are all the principles that work for us. Yeah. Well, but it's, and it's really hard because it is open to personal interpretation. And some people are extremely strict and extremely dogmatic and extremely unappealing. Great. You know? I mean, one of the things I like about our fellowship is the absence of dogma. Yeah. One of the things I love about it is the absence of judgment. Go try it for yourself. We'll still be here. Um, yeah, okay. But we're dealing with an epidemic of catastrophic neuroscientifically, biochemically engineered substances, which are putting a gaffer's hook through people's brains yeah. and making slaves out of its consumers, much in the same way as cigarettes has. Mm-hmm. There are buildings devoted to making cigarettes a better product, yeah. meaning better in terms of people not being able to quit. We're up against it. And when we're talking about these pills that are floating around in these gigantic pillow-sized you know, shrink wrap bags coming from wherever they're coming from, those substances don't leave people's system for two years. How are we going to be interesting to people who are trying to shake that crap yeah. for two years yeah. when we can't get them to listen to us for 10 seconds because, dude, dude, where's my phone? My phone is, do you have my phone? I can't find my phone. Where's my phablet? You know, like... They're so brought up on on technology and on the immediate gratification. I mean, I have them writing letters. Letters. By hand. By hand because they've never written a letter. Everything's been abbreviations with their thumbs. Yeah. Yeah. We don't write letters anymore. I have a a patient that I worked with who's now one of my sponsees. It's a natural gravitational. I mean, he he was looking at probation in 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 a New England state. His friend OD'd and died while he was in treatment. 
I was working with him through that agony of his friend who left because he felt survivor's guilt. He felt like he should have been there to save his friend. Make a long story short. I said, dude, write his family a letter. It's been the hardest thing in the world for him to write a letter because he doesn't know how to write a letter. Can you imagine? He's 23 years old. He doesn't know how to write a letter. So I'm taking him through the... Forget about the books. Forget about the brochures. Forget about the prayers. I'm teaching him how to write a letter to the parents of the, the friend that died to let them know that there's not a day that goes by that he doesn't think of of Adam, that there's not a day that goes by that he doesn't wish he could have been there for Adam, and there's not a day that goes by that he doesn't stay sober because he doesn't want to be Adam, and he just wants his parents to know that he loved Adam somewhat as much as they did. They need to hear that. They need to know that. Adam didn't have more than one best friend. Yeah. And that best friend was in treatment while Adam was dying. So, you know... We need to be troubadours. We need to be jacks of all trade. However, the direction of my life is incorporating my ability to be funny. The same way that you were attracted to me before you were attracted to any part of what was going on, that humor got you. Mm -hmm. I think that humor is going to get a lot of people. Oh, yeah. And that's what I'm dedicating myself to. The gift is mine. I've been using it to make money. I've been using it to try and conquer show business. And that's not the best use of my energy. The best use of my energy is to conquer the world, is to go out into the world and bring that humor for a reason other than me being more famous next week. Yeah. It's not about that. Yeah. Reach in, grab people with the humor, make them vulnerable, let them find their happy place, let them find out the exact statement that you made which is why I'm sitting here today, yeah. which is why you've always held me in high regard. Yeah. And that's because I brought joy to you in a way that you weren't expecting. In a way that I thought couldn't ever happen again, more importantly. Can you imagine that? That's my mission. Yeah. In a nutshell, that's my elevator speech. Yeah. It sounds really ooh-wow. It's not very specific when you're pitching to you know, reality TV executives. Right. But it's the truth. And I'm going to continue to speak that truth. I'm going to continue to do that because it feels right. Yeah. And it gives me the ability to fulfill my own affirmation, which was, I'm not going to be who I was. I'm going to be who I'm capable of being by doing everything I've never done so I can be the me I've never been. Yeah. Wow. I love it. This is one of those that I'm going to listen to over and over again. I'm not just blowing smoke right now because there are so many gems in here that I need to hear all the time. Can you imagine? And this is the outward manifestation of, I've been just, I'm, I'm like a, I'm like a stone. I'm like, I was like a, you know, I was almost like a diamond that was like uncut. Yeah. And all of this work, all of these phone calls, all of these get togethers, all of these groups, all of these hour 45 sessions in the room with people, hour 45 long groups with people that can't sit still for two seconds without wanting to kick a window out. Yeah. Hour 45, they're on the edge of their chair. Hour 45, they've got pens and notebooks out and they're doing exactly what you said. They want to say, could you say that again? Yeah. I don't want to break up the flow, dude, but what did you say? And I go, I don't know what I said before. It's just coming out of me. Well, now it's recorded for posterity. It's not rehearsed. Yeah. It's just me praying and opening the channel. Yeah. And letting the universe work through me, which I used to pray for yeah. and never thought. I didn't even know what that would mean. Yeah. I don't play the guitar. I don't play the violin. I'm not gorgeous at a, at a mic stand in front of 80,000 people in a stadium. But when I see people like Bon Jovi or I see people like Moby or when I see other artists, because I am an artist. Yeah. 
I, I see them holding people in the palm of their hand effortlessly when they're being that person. And that's who I can be because I've seen that so often. So I really have been a comedian by category. Right. But I've been the humor bringer by design. Yeah. I thought I was being a comedian. Yeah. I was really being medicine for people. Yeah. Yeah. Duh. Yeah. Duh. Duh. A a conduit between life and death. Right. Okay, wait. I feel like we have to end, and that was a good line. Is mine. I know. That's you've, fine. Had, you've said so many, but, but this is no. going to stop, and it was. So I'm glad it was good. you. It's your show. I hope you guys love that. He's something else, right? Go find him all over the internet, um, wherever you can. Uh, and thank you for listening. Keep listening. Keep reviewing. See you next time. <laughs>